You may or may not remember it. It was the 2002 Winter Olympics, Olympics and the Australian, Stephen Bradbury, somehow made it into the finals of the speed skating. He was the favourite to lose. The race was one kilometre long and Stephen Bradbury was coming last from the very start. The more the race went on, the further behind he got. And as he turned into the last lap, the other four competitors were all in a group, racing for first place, and he was 15 metres behind them all. There was a massive stack. There was a massive pile-up, and Stephen Bradbury cruised past from behind, cruised past the other four in the pile-up, and took out the gold medal. He was a bit... um, shy about it afterwards. He said he didn't really feel like pumping his fists, but he was very happy that he won. A complete reversal of fortunes, from last place to first. And in many ways, that's what today's passage in 1 Samuel is about. It's a reversal of fortunes. Firstly, for a lady called Hannah, who we just heard about, who in many ways is at the bottom of the heap, and God raises her up. God reverses her fortunes. But what we're reading today is not just about something in the past. It's not just a piece of history. It's actually pointing forward to the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, there's going to be a massive reversal of fortunes. Things that seemed important won't be important. Things that seemed insignificant will turn out to be eternally important. The first will be last. The last will be first. Jesus will return and everything will be turned on its head. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit. Firstly, let's think about 1 Samuel. Now you can't understand or read any part of the Old Testament without thinking about where it fits in the Bible timeline. Where does 1 Samuel fit? 1 Samuel comes about a 1,000 years before Jesus. In terms of uh, what's come before, though, way back in Genesis, God chose the nation of Israel. In Genesis 12, God chose a man, Abraham, and promised him land and people and blessing. In the Exodus, God rescued those people out of slavery. In Joshua... They entered the promised land and they have now been living in the promised land a while by the book of Judges. But things are a mess, a terrible mess by the end of the book of Judges. Now, in our Bibles, you may have noticed, Ruth comes between Judges and 1 Samuel. And we've been looking at Ruth and it is set in the time of the Judges. But in the original Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel came straight after the book of Judges. Ruth was over in the wisdom literature with Esther and so on. So let's look at what's come immediately before 1 Samuel, which is the end of the book of Judges. Turn back with me just a couple of pages to Judges 1, 25, the last verse of the book of Judges. It's about two pages over to the left of the start of Samuel. Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. 
I'll wait till I hear all those pages stop rustling. That's a lovely sound. Judges 21.25 In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now last year we did a series in the Old Testament. The book of Judges ended with Israel out of control. In Judges 19, they raped a girl all night long. They chopped her into pieces and they sent her limbs in the mail all around Israel. In Judges 20, there was a civil war, you may remember, and 60,000 people from the tribe of Benjamin were murdered by their fellow Israelites. And then in Judges 21, this last chapter, the Benjaminite men now ambush some women at an annual religious festival in Shiloh and they abduct these women as their wives. It is sickening. It is a mess. It's one of the darkest periods so far in the Old Testament. And as you read these last few chapters of Judges, there's a refrain that keeps coming through at the start of every chapter. So look at the start of chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Turn over to chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Terrible stuff in 19 and 20 and 21. And then write the last verse of the book. 21.25, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. In the Star Wars movies, whenever something bad happens that is connected with Darth Vader, there's this music that comes through, the Darth Vader theme music that just lets you know this is bad, you know, dun, 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 you know that music? That's a bit like this refrain here in Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Sin is out of control. It is a hopeless mess. And it's into this dark backdrop that we open to the book of 1 Samuel. And turn with me to the start of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, from all of Israel, we zoom in on one family within this nation of Israel. We zoom in on this obscure fellow called Elkanah who appears in 1 Samuel 1 and he's gone by chapter 3. We never hear about him again. And we zoom in on this obscure town called Ramathane which doesn't come up anywhere else in the Bible. It's almost like we just picked this random guy out of some random town in Israel. And what do we find? We find that his life, his family life, is a mess too. Did you notice as it was read, he has two wives, which doesn't seem to be working out too well for him. His wives are bickering. Happy wife, happy life. It's not a very happy life with two unhappy wives. Perhaps the the darkest, the worst of all, is the fact that one of his wives can't have children. Hannah, his favourite wife, is barren. Now, they seem to be doing the right thing. They go up each year to Shiloh, they they offer their sacrifices to God, and yet Hannah is barren. It's not an accident, though. God has closed her womb. Look with me at verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. 
Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. That's the first sign that things are majorly not right here. Now, we live in a broken world. Back in Genesis, God announced his curse on humanity for their rejection of him, weeds and thistles on the ground, and women will bear children in pain. But this is worse than bearing children in pain, isn't it? Hannah can't have children at all. Back in Exodus, when God rescued his people, he promised to take them into the land and, if they obeyed him, to bless them. In Exodus 23:25, he said, Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on you. None will miscarry or be barren in your land. That's clearly not the case here, is it? Which means the nation of Israel are under the judgment of God. And I guess that's no surprise when we saw what was happening in Judges. What a terrible time to be an Israelite. Hannah is barren. And it's made worse by the fact that Elkanah's other wife can have children. And rather than sympathise with Hannah's pain, she causes Hannah more pain. Verse 6. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. I imagine you could say some pretty hurtful and spiteful things to a woman who couldn't have children. It gets to the point where Hannah can't take it anymore. Verse 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah is so desperate that she makes a deal with God. It's here as she makes this deal that we get the next hint of how bad things are in Israel. Have a look at the response of Eli, the priest, To her prayer, verse 13. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. The first reaction of the priest when he sees someone praying in the temple is to think that they're drunk. It makes you wonder what's happening in the temple, doesn't it? Obviously, not a lot of people are praying. As it turns out, this annual religious festival that this family is attending in Shiloh, it's the same place, Shiloh, that the annual religious festival happened in the end of Judges, where the Benjaminites came and took those virgins and grabbed them and abducted them. There's even worse things going on in the temple at Shiloh. We'll find out about them in a couple of chapters. It's no wonder the priest is used to bad things happening here. But Hannah's not drunk, is she? She's praying. And incredibly, wonderfully, God answers her prayer. 
Into this world of darkness, a single ray of light shines in on Hannah. Something good is happening to someone in Israel. Verse 19. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. It's a glimmer of hope. God gives her a child. Now, sadly, um, as I've been reading about 1 Samuel, as I've been preparing, that is where a lot of people leave this story of Hannah. They get excited about Hannah having a baby, and then they start to try and draw some lesson for us about perhaps the power of prayer or the goodness of God. The problem is, Hannah is not here as an example for us. Hannah's not here as an example of what normal life looks like. It's the opposite. Hannah is here because this is so abnormal. This is unheard of. We're meant to be surprised by this. There may have been lots of barren women in Israel, but this barren woman has conceived. We're meant to be asking, what is this all about? And in, in fact, in chapter 2, we find out what it's all about. Hannah wouldn't want us to stop at chapter 1. Hannah would want us to read on because in chapter 2, she tells us what this is all about. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah's prayer. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one besides you, there is no rock like our God. See, God has changed Hannah's life, it's been a reversal of fortunes, there's no doubt about that. Hannah is happy, and she's recognising God's goodness. But this is not all that God is doing. Because Hannah's song picks up momentum pretty quickly. By verse 4, she's talking about a bigger reversal. Look at verse 4. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. And lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit the throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. God is powerful. But he can do more than make a barren woman pregnant. He can take the most successful person in the world. And bring them down to the grave just like that. He can take a dead person and raise them to life, just like that. No one can oppose him. No one is his equal. He can close wombs and he can open them. But Hannah doesn't even leave it there. Her prayer comes to a massive crescendo in verse 10. Have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. 
The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God will turn this entire planet upside down. What started with Hannah will reach to the ends of the world. Hannah looks forward to the day when every single person will be judged by God. And I want you to notice, have a pause and notice how strange that last line of verse 10 is. He will give strength to his king. His king? Israel don't even have a king. They've never had a king yet. That was the refrain in the book of Judges. That's how the book of Judges ended. In those days, Israel had no king. Hannah's prayer now has become a prophecy. God is now showing us what will happen in the future. In the great reversal, God will raise up a king. And it's showing us more than than just what will happen in the future. Hannah is part of this plan of what will happen in the future. This is why Hannah had this baby. Because as we read on, Hannah's son, Samuel, is going to be the prophet who will anoint Israel's first king, King Saul. God is already at work in the life of Hannah to fulfill this prophecy. And yet King Saul is not the king who will fulfill this prophecy. He's the start of it, but there's another king who will come along a long time after Hannah's dead. Did you know that Leonardo da Vinci died before he finished the painting of The Last Supper? There was a bit of it not finished. He never got to see it completed. One of his most famous works. Did you know Albert Einstein predicted gravitational waves in 1916, but he never got to see one? And they were only discovered for the first time in February 11 this year, 100 years after Albert Einstein predicted them. He never got to find out. Hannah here is prophesying about a king who she never got to see. A king who came a thousand years later. When we open our Bibles to Luke 1, don't open now but you might want to read it later, we meet another barren woman who becomes pregnant. Her name was Elizabeth. She has a son, not Samuel, but John. And look, as exciting as that is, Elizabeth, a barren woman giving birth to a son, it's not actually about her son John. John says, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And after John comes Jesus. And King Jesus is the one who brings about this reversal that Hannah was talking about. Jesus is the one who will one day return and when he does, the dead will be raised. Just like in Hannah's prayer. And when Jesus returns, he will bring down the proud and he will exalt the humble. Just like in Hannah's prayer. When Jesus returns, he will judge. Just like in Hannah's prayer. The first will be last, and the last will be first. 
See, the way to get into the kingdom of King Jesus, it's down. It's to get down on your knees and beg for forgiveness. It's to humble yourself and see that you desperately need Jesus' death to pay for your wrongs and to throw yourself on his mercy. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I hope you can see both the warning and the comfort in that. It's a warning because if you think that it's below you to ask for forgiveness from God, if you think that somehow you can be good enough, if you think that you can get ahead in this world by your own strength, if you think that you're a self-made person who, who doesn't need God, if you think God owes you something, or other people owe you something in this life, you have got it all wrong. There is coming a day when you will be brought down. You are heading for disaster. It is not by strength that one prevails, Hannah said in her prayer. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. It's a warning. But it's also a comfort, isn't it? Because as we look forward to that day when Jesus will right the wrongs of this world and fix things up, we don't have to worry if everything is not fixed now. We don't have to get anxious if we're treated badly. We can let it go. We don't have to try and pay back people for the wrong that they do in this life. We can let it go. We don't have to worry if life hasn't worked out for us like we might have hoped or planned. We don't have to worry if we had a life where we didn't get what we wanted or we got what we didn't want. Hannah said, one day God will raise the poor from the dust and lift the needy from the ash heap. A lot of stuff that we do for Jesus behind the scenes, it is not noticed by this world. A lot of the stuff that we give up for Jesus is laughed at by this world. But God notices. He will guard the feet of his saints, Hannah says. And one day when Jesus returns, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the last will be first, and the first will be last. So if you are a follower of Jesus, a humble follower of Jesus, Hannah's prayer is a great comfort. Hang in there, because just around the corner there is a great reversal. And if you are quietly waiting for the return of Jesus... Trusting in him, you will be lifted up. Let's pray. Father God, we still see so clearly the evidence in this world that we have messed it up. And we
we're under your judgment. But Father, thank you that when Jesus returns, he will right the wrongs of this world. And Father, thank you that it's not those who somehow work themselves up to heaven by being good who will be saved. We know none of us can be that good. But thank you that it's those who humble themselves who are forgiven by you. And Father, thank you that Jesus has displayed that so clearly in the cross where he humbled himself and he died to take the punishment for the sin of your people. And Father, thank you that in a wonderful display, a wonderful reversal, you raised him from death to life. But thank you that he's just the first of many. Thank you that when he returns, we who are trusting in him will be raised too. Father, please give us patience in this life. Please help us not to live for the things around us, but to live for the return of Jesus. Father, please help us not to seek the good of ourselves, but to seek the good of each other and to serve Jesus. And please help us to long and yearn for and live for that day when he returns. Amen.